0: Glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devon Neal. You know what? Before we read it and get into the chart, let's just go ahead and read the first three verses of Revelation one. Uh, so stand with me, if you would please, as we'll just read the first three verses, the introductory verses to this. Um, the Bible says in verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. To show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God, and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Thank you, you may be seated. When we finish with this introduction, we'll, of course, be getting into what he has to say to the seven churches. There's much to be said and some things practically to be said here. If the Lord does not, change my mind between now and Sunday. On Sunday, we'll begin a series in Sunday school dealing with the local church. Dad preached a series of messages uh, recently. We'll we'll be coming at it from a different angle. I want to deal with it from more of a teaching doctrinal standpoint um, rather than just a comparative standpoint uh, in in preaching. Uh, I think Dad, when he preached at Bible conference a little over a year ago, He dealt with it from the standpoint of the church being like a bride. The church is like a building. So some analogies in the Bible to the local church. I hope and wish to deal with what a church is, why God is still using the local church in our day, how a church should function, um, what a church does. There's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of false teaching, a lot of attack on the local church as an institution. A lot of people today treating the church like they treat marriage. Uh, We can have the benefits of marriage without the institution, the commitment required to have marriage we can have the benefits and blessings of a local church without being officially a part of one or uniting ourselves to one or having the responsibility to one and we want to try to undo some of that if we can with the word of god amen so in revelation 1 we're going to be dealing with the local church i find it interesting i'm just going to say something this by way of introduction when the lord jesus wanted to deliver this final book of the bible he did not deliver it to general Christians at large he delivered it to local churches He did not deliver it to the church of Asia Minor. Do you realize there was no such animal as the church of Asia Minor? There were the churches of Asia Minor. Meaning we see the Lord working and delivering his word through the Apostle John to local churches in writing. Is that not the way we still see the Lord communicating with his people today? I love it. You look right in your Bible and say, hey, by the time you get to the end of the Bible, you find this is where we are right here. The Lord Jesus Christ communicating his mind and his will and doing his work on earth Through churches, correcting those churches, dealing with them on an individual basis. So let me just say this. I'm getting just a little off track didn't intend to. When you hear somebody say, the church today, and they speak of the church needs to get in motion, the church needs revival, there's some danger in that statement. I understand what they're inferring, that there is a spiritual relationship between every saved person. But that relationship does not constitute one gigantic universal church. That is, I understand we all have a spiritual relationship. We believe that and teach that, that there is a spiritual body that every believer is part of, but the Lord is doing and carrying out His work through local New Testament churches. This church needs revival in some ways, whereas another church may need revival in some other areas, and the Lord deals with the local New Testament church as the head of every church. And you see that emphasized in the book of Revelation. And, so, and again, we don't want to fight or fuss. It's not the point, but it's important to understand that or we get confused about the Lord's work in our lives. So, Having said that, we'll get into some of those things in chapter 1, and then we'll look at those seven churches and what the Lord Jesus had to say. So we say, what, what do you think of the seven churches? It's going to blow your mind. First and foremost, I think there were seven churches. Do they represent ages of time? Maybe, but here's what I do know. they were seven distinct churches. <laughs> and that, I believe, probably represent every kind of a problem any church throughout any age of time will face. And uh, we'll deal with that as we get there. I've preached through those in time past, the seven churches of Asia Minor. But having said that, tonight, let's get our focus here. I said we'd show you this chart, and I want you to see this uh, tonight, a comparison between Genesis and Revelation. Uh, and so I don't know if you can read this. I got this as big as I could and to get the whole chart. I have two charts on here. The first one dealing with the precursed world, or what, um, what the writer called the probationary world, but it's referring to the world before it was cursed, when God gave man... The opportunity. He used the word probationary, and that's not what I have written there, but he used the word probationary because man was given free will, given the ability to choose to obey or disobey. So you might call that on probation. You won't find that word in the Bible. So I've termed it the precursed world. And what you find in Genesis, Genesis one, verse four, is God divided light from darkness. In Revelation twenty-one, verse twenty-five, in the eternal world, when there'll be a new heaven, new earth, there'll be no night there. No night, no darkness. So in the beginning there in Genesis, God divided the light from the darkness, but in Revelation there'll be no night. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 10, excuse me, Genesis 1, verse 10, you find the division of the land and sea. Revelation 21, verse 1, there is no more sea. Genesis 1 16, the rule of the sun and moon. Revelation 21 23, no need for the sun or moon, for the Lord is the light there. Uh, in Genesis 2, uh, verses 1 through 3, the first heavens and the first earth are finished. In Revelation 21, verse 1, there's a new heaven and a new earth forever. In Genesis 2, 8 through 9, man is in a prepared garden. In Revelation 21, 2, we're in a prepared city, and that word is used. It's a, as a bride adorned and prepared for her husband. Okay, in uh, Genesis 2, verse 10, there's a river flowing out of the Garden of Eden. Gen, uh, Revelation 22, verse 1, there's a river flowing from God's throne. In Genesis 2 9, there's a tree of life in the midst of the garden. We know that's true. Revelation 22 verse 2, there's a tree of life. The tree of life is found throughout the city. It's growing throughout the city. Alright, uh, in uh, Genesis 2 verse 12, there's gold in the land. Revelation 21 verse 21, there's gold in the city. In fact, we know that the street is made of gold. Uh, in Genesis 2 12, there's delium and the onyx stone. Revelation, uh, or excuse me, in 21 19, Revelation, all manner of precious stones. Genesis 3.8, God's walking in the garden. Genesis 21.3, he's dwelling with his people. Uh, Revel- Genesis 1.2, the spirit is energizing. He moved upon the face of the waters. In Revelation 22.17, the spirit is inviting. The spirit and the bride say, come. So he's energizing. Genesis 1.2, Revelation 22.17, he's inviting. Uh, Genesis 2.21.23, a bride was formed for her husband from her husband. A, a bride formed from her husband. In Revelation 22, you find, 21, verse 2, a bride adorned for her husband. In Genesis 1, 28, uh, 28, we have a command to multiply. In Revelation 21, verse 24, the nations of the saved are found. In Genesis 3, 1 through 5, the garden is accessible to the liar. I thought this was very interesting. In Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5, the garden was accessible to the liar. The serpent entered and lied. But in Revelation 21, verse 8 and 21, verse 27... The city is closed to all liars. Nothing that, that makes a lie will enter into the new, the new Jerusalem. And so uh, Genesis 1.27, man is in God's image. Revelation 21, verse 3, man is in God's presence. Genesis 2.17, man is the probationer, meaning he has the opportunity to obey or disobey. But in Revelation 21, verse 7, he is the heir. And so all things are restored in the eternal world. And then there's a second chart. Uh oh, that just went out on me. I don't know what happened. You know what? I'll walk you through it without it on the screen. I don't know what just took place there. I just know that it did. Oh, there we're back. How about that? We'll try it again. Nope, it doesn't like that. I had a second chart, but it doesn't want to show it. So, okay, I'll walk you through that second chart. Um, so in the precursed world, you see a comparison between Genesis and Revelation. I apologize for that. The chart was, I thought it was in there, but apparently not. Um, in, in the cursed world, so after Adam and Eve sin, uh, you find a correlation between Genesis and Revelation, between the cursed world and the redeemed world. So the precursed world and the eternal world, there's correlation. But then between the cursed world and the redeemed world, there's a correlation. So in Genesis uh, 3.17, the ground is cursed. We find a cursed ground. Revelation twenty two verse three, the Bible says there is no more curse. Uh Genesis three seventeen, there's daily sorrow. Genesis three seventeen, there's sorrow for the woman and her childbearing and the sorrow of the sweat and the brow and so forth. Revelation twenty one verse four, no more sorrow. Uh, Genesis three nineteen, sweat on the face. Revelation twenty one verse four, no more tears. Genesis three eighteen, thorns and thistles. Revelation twenty one verse four, no more pain. Uh, Genesis 3.18, eating herbs of the field. Revelation 22, verse 2, there's 12 manner of fruits. Genesis 3.19, we return to the dust. Uh, That's what God said, we return to the dust. In Revelation 21, verse 4, the Bible says no more death. In Genesis 3.21, he clothed them with coats of skins. In Revelation 19, verse 14, we're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. No coats of skins, okay? Uh, Genesis 3.15, Satan is opposing Revelation 20, verse 10, Satan is banished. Genesis 3.24, we are kept from the tree of life. Man is removed and barred from the tree of life. But in Revelation 22, 14, we have access to the tree of life. In Genesis 3.23, we're banned from the garden. But in Revelation 22, 14, the believer, the child of God, has free entry to the city. Genesis 3.15, the Redeemer is promised as the seed of the woman. In Revelation 5 9 and Revelation 5 10, we find redemption has been accomplished. Evil continually is found in Genesis six, verse five, just before the flood. Evil continually. But in Revelation twenty one, verse twenty seven, there's nothing in the holy city that defileth. Nothing that defileth. So in the cursed earth, evil continually. In the New Jerusalem, nothing that defileth. Genesis three fifteen, we find the seed of the woman. In Revelation twenty two, verse sixteen, we have the root and the offspring of David. And then finally, Genesis three twenty four, there's a cherubim guarding. The angel to keep man out. But in Revelation 21 verse 9, angels are inviting men. You see the correlation. I think we could probably even go on. If you read Genesis and you compare it to Revelation, you'll read about Babylon in Genesis 11. You'll read about Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. I mean, it is over and over and over what fell and what was ruined in Genesis is restored and completely restored in Revelation Telling us it's the completion of a book, Amen. Uh, God has given us a book, and I'm glad for it. So now, having seen that, by the way, if you're interested in having these charts, um, I can get you a copy uh, if that would interest you. Um, I I enjoy them, and so if you'd like to have that for your own personal copy, you let me know, and uh, we'll get you get you a copy. All right, Revelation chapter one, verses one through three. Again, give you three things tonight about these three first verses, and um, just to introduce us to the book and introduce the book to us. Let's read this again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth uh, and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for... The time is at hand. Three short verses, but a mouthful is stated. So much, I believe, that stated in these first few verses correlate um, to larger issues. So here, you're going to be dealing with, with how God, we already mentioned it, how God has chosen to communicate to us in this time. This book that we have, by, his, by history, the book of Revelation, is the, it is the newest of the books of the Bible, estimated to have been written around A.D. ninety before john died now we don't have to nail that down but it is apparently the newest book of the bible meaning uh, by this point in time there's been a tremendous amount of persecution john is the last living apostle he's been exiled to the isle of patmos and in essence there were some things that god did immediately after the ascension of christ to confirm so there were signs and wonders and confirmation of the words of the apostles and so forth uh, to make sure that people knew that they were telling the truth that what they had was the word of God. And by the time you get to the end of, of Revelation, we're seeing very clearly uh, how God was communicating then is how God's communicating now. And uh, and so we see that what the Lord is he chose one servant. He chose John the apostle, and he gave him some revelation concerning things to come. That revelation came from God through Jesus Christ by an angel to John to a page to the seven churches. Yeah, I say this, I'm just going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to reiterate this. If we have a problem thinking that God's words will be lost as they are passed from one person to another, then you better close your book at Revelation 1. Because it came from God the Father to God the Son to an angel signified by an angel to John the Apostle, an old man. He wrote it down and gave it in writing to seven different churches. I mean, there had to be either one copy shared with all seven churches or one copy for each of the seven churches. And what I'm trying to say is if you think that John, that the angel perhaps uh, maybe messed up a little bit with what the Lord Jesus told him. No, no, angels, they don't make mistakes. Well, then we got to count that John got it all down just right, and that as he copied, nothing was lost. If the only reason we're going to accept that the Bible is the word of God is that we can explain it in a natural sense, I'm guessing the Bible is not intended for us. This says it was written to the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ have placed their faith in him. And tonight we must live by faith. And the very introduction requires us to approach this book with faith and submission. God tells us. He does not hide from us. How many of us know that God, had he chosen, could give every believer the same revelation he gave to John? Let's just think this through tonight. Could not God, by the Holy Spirit, give every believer the same experience that John had on the Isle called Patmos? Well, of course he could. He's God. But that's not the way he chose to do it. He told John, write these things in in a book, meaning God, Almighty God, who created the universe, chose to have one servant put in writing what he told him, and the rest of us get to read what John saw, and we're expected to believe it. That's, you know, what, you know what here's here's what i believe number 1 the most powerful form of communication is still the written form number 2 it requires faith on our part we have to trust that god has not only given his word but preserved his word and so then we see that already as we as we come into the book so as we look at these first three verses tonight i want to give you three simple points verse 1 we're going to deal with the revelation itself verse 2 we're going to deal with the recorder of that revelation Excuse me, verse 3, the reader. The revelation, the recorder, and the reader. So it says in verse 1, the revelation of who? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean this book is going to reveal who Jesus is? Well, it is, but it's not... The revelation of deals with this is what Jesus Christ has revealed. Now, we understand that the word uh, the word revelation, it comes from the, we get the word apocalypse. Okay, so apocalyptos or apocalypsis, different Greek words where we get the word apocalypse. When I say the word apocalypse, what do you think? What does it become synonymous with today? Disaster. Yeah. Oh, that, that was just an, an apocalyptic scene. What we mean by that is a very revealing scene. Apocalypse means brought to light or to appear. Meaning, there are things that Jesus Christ knows about the future that, until He told it to John, we didn't really see or know. Prior to the Book of Revelation, you have you have hints at this. Second Peter chapter three, you have you have the heavens being dissolved with, and the elements melted with fervent heat. Peter references that. So, all the apostles, as they write to the end times, there is a there is a writing forward. If you read of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament uh, books, you read of it there. I believe in the book of Joel. You get many of the things in the book of Zechariah, read the day of the Lord, that are referencing the great tribulation, but John is going to get full revelation. Here's what's coming. Here's what's going to happen. It's presented to us in a book that had seven seals, and as those seals are opened, it begins to unfold what God's going to do in the end of time. And the revelation of Jesus Christ means Jesus Christ knows this, and he revealed it to his servant John. It's very interesting in Acts chapter 1, the, the disciples asked, Lord, will you restore the kingdom at this time? He says, not for you to know the times and seasons. You tarry here until the Holy Ghost is given, and then you'll be endued with power and so forth. But here, at this point, he's willing to give some more revelation about what's coming down the pike, and it is written uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ, so it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, I've put down here that Jesus Christ is the supplier of the revelation. All right, He is the supplier. Remember, he is the mediator between God and men. And so he is the goal between. He's the one communicating the mind of God to, to our hearts and our minds by his Holy Spirit. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's the supplier. Let me read you verse John chapter 1, verse 18. There are those that claim to know God, yet at the same time reject Jesus Christ. Let me, just, let me, let me try to help us with this tonight. We get sometimes the idea... For instance, that the friendliness between Judaism and Christianity is there because we are worshiping the same God. And in some sense, I understand that. Judaism was known for their worship of Jehovah God. But how many of us know that Judaism today has rejected Jehovah God? We say, no, pastor. They are a people. No, they have re- Here's how we know that. Because they rejected Jehovah God when he came to them in the person of Jesus Christ. There will be a restoration, as God has promised, and we'll see in the book of Revelation of that nation through the Lord Jesus Christ, but through the work that the tribulation will accomplish and all of that. But the fact is, their God is not our God. Our God has a son named Jesus Christ, Uh, the God of the Muslims, though they claim that they worship the God of Abraham. That would be Jehovah God, would it not? Yet their God is not our God. Because Jesus Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And without knowing Jesus Christ, you cannot know God. Because Jesus Christ is who reveals God to us. So outside of him, we cannot know the Lord. John chapter 1, uh, verse 18, the Bible says, No man hath seen God at any time. So there's no man that has seen God and fully comprehended him. There are men that have caught glimpses of God, but this has the idea of seeing him and comprehending him. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And so Revelation 1, verse 1 again, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. So that's the source of this revelation. God gave this truth that we're about to read in this book about the the things that are coming, the tribulation that's coming, the end of the world, the establishment of his kingdom on earth and the new heaven and new earth. All of that God the Father said, this is it. And Jesus Christ gave it to an angel. An angel gave it to John. The Bible goes on to say, uh, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. We don't want to miss what's said here. So the supplier, Jesus Christ. The source, God the Father uh, Hebrews chapter 1, I'm going to just read this very quickly, verses 1 and 2, speaking of how God communicates with us. It says in verse 1 of Hebrews 1, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. And so the supplier of this revelation is Jesus Christ, the source, God the Father, Uh, The servants, we we see in this verse, that are written to. Again, this this book is designed for the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus wants his servants to understand these things. God the Father wants the servants of himself, the servants of his Son, to understand these things. This is why a lost world takes the book of Revelation and butchers it. (laughs) They're not the servants of God. This book is designed for the servants of God. May I say this? The Bible is really written for the believer. It is to be preached to the unbeliever to call them to repentance. But you think about this. The church, I mean, the book of uh, First of Corinthians was written to a church. The book of Second Corinthians, written to a church. The book of Galatians, written to churches. The book of Ephesians, written to a church. The book of Philippians, written to a church. The book of Colossians, written to a church. You'll not find a book in your Bible written primarily to a group of unbelievers. In the Old Testament, it was written to the nations of Israel and Judah uh, and so on. And so the Word of God has been committed to the servants of Jesus Christ. This book in specific is re- intended for His servants. This brings us to another principle of the Bible. There are people who have not submitted and surrendered their will to God. They're not servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Either They've never been saved or they're not at this moment. They're not submitted as they ought to be. The Lord Jesus said in John chapter seven, verse seventeen, "If any man will know the doctrine, uh, if any man will do his will, uh, it will do his will. He shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself." The key to understanding Scripture is first the heart, not the head. Remember again, this is written to who? The servants of the lord to show unto his servants this is a very special book that the lord jesus christ has given to those who have submitted themselves to him as their savior and their lord and so the key to that is am i a servant of christ tonight if i'm his servant this is a special book for me so the supplier the lord jesus christ the source of that supply god the father the servants that it's written to well that's that's the servants of the lord it's it's intended uh, for those who are, who are belong to the Lord and are his servants. And then finally, the signification. The Bible tells us how he got it to his servants. He did not broadly give it to all his servants. He entrusted it to one of his servants uh, to give to others. The Bible says, and he sent and signified it. Signified. Now, uh, I've heard other preachers point this out. What do you mean signified? If you read that word different, again, I've heard, again, heard another, other preachers say, if you read that different, what would it say? Signified. There are signs that are given here. There are things that are communicated uh, by signs and and not we don't need necessarily um, uh, miracles in the sense of having to prove that I'm God. But if you study throughout the book of Revelation, there are things that are symbolic And there are things that are not. And the signification here is that God has used a vision. Okay? So this is a vision John's going to have. And in that vision, you're going to find a dragon. In that vision, you're going to find a great horse sitting on many waters. And the Lord will explain that dragon is the devil. He's the serpent from Genesis. He signified it. God gave John a vision to say, as you see this vision, this vision is going to signify what's coming down the pike. Some say... How in the book of Revelation do we determine what is allegory and what is to be taken literally? I find there that when there's allegory, generally speaking, he tells you, this is. he doesn't use the word allegory, but he says, for instance, the whore on, on many waters in Revelation 17 is not talking about a literal woman sitting on many waters. The many waters are people. So he's explaining the signification, symbolism, right? A lot of symbolism that's used in this book to signify coming truth. How many of us know that God intentionally gives His Word at times to keep unbelievers confounded? We see that throughout Scripture. Um, Isaiah prophesied of it. The Lord Jesus spoke of it when He gave parables. He said, I speak in parables that they having eyes may not see and ears may not hear, lest they would believe and be converted and I should heal them. I'm paraphrasing, but the idea was He, he clouded His Word to some degree and I cannot help but believe that some of the way this is written is to keep those who are not servants from understanding. (laughs) Amen? And so then we find the revelation, the supplier, Jesus Christ, the source, God the Father, written to the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, signified by his angel to John. I find if you read the book of Jeremiah, and I hope I'm not rambling too much, but if you read the book of Jeremiah, if I asked you who is the penman of the book of Jeremiah, who would you say? Who we would think, isn't it? But you realize he actually didn't pin most of those words down. Of any of them, Baruch the son of Neriah did that. Jeremiah got revelation from God. He told Baruch what to write, and Baruch wrote it down. You find that I believe in Jeremiah chapter thirty-six because when it's taken the king, he cuts it up with a pin knife and throws it in the fire, and then Jeremiah tells Baruch what to write, and he writes it down. And it's very interesting. We would say Jeremiah is the author. Well, he's the one that received the revelation, and here John received the revelation and wrote it down. But Jesus Christ, obviously we see a vision of Christ here. But God, the Father, through Jesus Christ, sent a messenger, an angel to John, who signified this to John, and John wrote it down. Notice how many channels. How many have ever heard somebody say something like this? And I know I'm mean being a bit repetitive. Forgive me. How many have heard somebody say something like this? Well, you cannot trust that we have today in our hands uh, what God originally stated because of the little game telephone, you know. Well, that's fine if we were playing telephone with a bunch of humans and God wasn't involved. But we're not. And it's almost as though God has signified and showed us, this is how I did it, just to help us understand how he gets his word to us and help us to rest that he is God and he'll preserve his own words. And so the signification, what we have here in Revelation 1.1 is a holy man of God speaking as he's moved by the Holy Ghost. And you say, well, the Holy Ghost is not mentioned. Not here, but of course in 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter 1. We know that the Lord Jesus sent an angel and signified it to John. The point is, God moved and communicated to John. John wrote it down, and we have the record. And so, the revelation uh, seen in verse 1. God the Father, by Jesus Christ, to his servants, through an angel, by the servant John. We see the chain as it comes down from heaven to us. Uh, as God gives us his word. Number two, we find some emphasis put on the recorder. He says in verse 1, of course, John often, I I think as far as I know, every time John references himself, he does so in the second person. He calls himself by the name John or the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't say, and he sent and signified it uh, by his angel unto me. He says he sent it unto his servant John. Meaning, he say, I'm one of those servants that it's for. I'm a fellow servant with you uh, that is receiving this revelation from the Savior. And then he says, verse 2, who bear record of what? The word of God. I thought he got the word of an angel. When the word of God, the Father, was transmitted to God the Son, and then God the Son transmitted it to, God, uh, to, to the angel who's a creation, amen? Did it ever cease to be the word of God? Now, I'm not trying to overemphasize tonight. We need to to see how the Bible is constructed and how it is explained to us. When God gave his word, let me ask you this. Once it went from God the Father to God the Son to an angel to John, and John put it on paper, is it still the word of God? John said, what I recorded was not my word, not the angel's word, God's word. Because God is the source. Amen? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and so then here's John. He said uh, uh, he he bear record. So that word record is used uh, more than once by uh, the apostle John in First John chapter five verses ten through thirteen. He said this is the record that God gave to us of His Son. So he uses the word record. Record is a written documentation of something someone has said. And here he uses it in John chapter twenty one verse 24 john the the apostle uses similar language when he talks about uh, the writing of this book he said in john 21 verse 24 this is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things and we know that his testimony is true john is careful to help us understand that he is simply recording what god told him he is a recorder he is not the author who bear record of the word of God. Then he goes and say, so he bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Uh-oh. So we have in here the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and the things that John saw. Or does he put it to us in this way to say, I bear record of all three of these things and they're all the same thing. That's the idea. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. The word of God is what Jesus testified to John. And what Jesus testified to John is what John saw. What he's saying is he's walking us back through verse verse number one. God the Father gave this to God the Son. God the Son gave it to me and I saw it. I wrote down what God said, what Jesus said, and what I saw. And they're all three the same thing. Telling us of the integrity of the word of God. This this deals with the completeness of his record and it deals with the consistency of his record which tells us of the integrity of the word of God. What God said, Jesus Christ testified. What Jesus Christ testified, John saw. So he recorded the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ and all things that he saw, they're all the same thing. It's a different way of describing the same thing. And so then, nothing that John saw was any different than what God said. Nothing that John saw was anything different than what Jesus testified because God and the Father are one. And so then the recorder, what we find is he's a man of great integrity who recorded with integrity the things that God said and revealed. What I saw deals with what God, through Jesus Christ, revealed to him. And then thirdly, we find the reader. That's us. So you find the revelation. Verse 1, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 2, who bear record of the word of God. That's the recorder. And then verse 3, the Bible says, blessed is he that... Readeth. Now, I find this very, I just, I love this. I know I'm reiterating this tonight. But what God said to John through Jesus Christ, John saw, and what John saw on the Isle of Patmos, you and I are reading. We get to read what he saw. Meaning, we are reading tonight the very word of God. You think it's on accident that God emphasizes this in the final book of the Bible. You think it's on accident that God said there's a curse to those that add to this book and there are things taken away from those who take away from this book? It's like an exclamation point on the whole Bible. This is not a book of men. This is not something some man crafted up. It's what God saw and gave and what men have written down is the word of God. Blessed is he that not... He doesn't say blessed is he that has the same vision I had. Blessed is he that has the same experience I had. He said blessed is he that... Readeth. You realize over and over God has gone to great lengths to help you and I understand He has chosen to communicate to us in writing. John says in John chapter 20, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe on the Son of God and that believing you might have life through His name. And so then He said, blessed are things that are written. And here blessed is He that readeth. And so there's a promise to the reader of this book Blessed is he that readeth, uh, and then what's he say? And they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. He outlines a process that we find outlined and articulated in Matthew chapter 13. I'll turn there, if you would, very quickly. About he says to us in Matthew 13, and a few weeks ago I preached on this, a number of messages on how we hear. So he's going to great lengths to emphasize You're blessed if you read, but he's not. He's clarifying. I'm not talking about just there is some kind of magical blessing imparted to the reader of Revelation. Blessed is he that readeth and what? Heareth. You want the things that the Lord Jesus will say to the seven churches over and over? If any man have an ear, let him hear. Do you realize there are people that read a Bible, but they don't have an ear? They read it, but they can't hear it. So John says, I want to be very clear. The blessing here is not for the casual reader. It's not for the person who simply goes through and sounds out phonetically the words of... See, we are fleshly in our thinking. And we might start thinking superstitiously. Ooh, if you'll read the book of Revelation. I know of guys in jail and they like to read Job and Revelation. There's some some superstitiousness in that. And uh, no, that's not what he's talking about. It's not superstitious. Blessed is he that readeth and heareth and keep the things that he reads. Matthew chapter 13, verse 23, dealing with the parable of the sower, the Bible says, But he that received seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word, and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit, and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. What's he say about the the four types of ground? There are those who hear it, and before they can receive it, the vert, the fowls of the air snatch it away. A picture of how Satan snatches the seed of God's word from people before they even receive it. There are those who receive it with joy. I mean, immediately, oh, I believe that. But it has no root. They don't believe it in their heart. They give a mere um, outward uh, acceptance that's not ho- uh, rooted in the heart by faith. Then there are those who choke, the, the word is choked out with thorns, uh, the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches and uh, love of other things and pleasures and so forth. But then there are those who hear it, understand it, meaning they hear it, they understand it, they keep it, and it bears fruit in their life. And the same kind of language is used here in Revelation chapter 1. It's not just reading it. The blessing is for the person who reads it with an ear of faith. We read it with an ear of faith. Blessed is he that readeth, and they, they hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. Why? For the time is at hand. Twice now in these three verses he's mentioned time. In verse 1 he says uh, this is signified unto servant things which must shortly come to pass. Now we might read that and that can throw us. We say shortly come to pass. My goodness that was written 2,000 years ago. And most of the things in this book have not come to pass. The idea might be okay there was going to be a very short span of time between the writing of Revelation and the things that are written about. I don't perceive that's what he's saying. How long of a span of time does the book of Revelation cover until you get into the very end? So the majority of the book, all the way up through about Revelation 19, covers a span of seven years. Meaning, what he's going to say, when it comes to pass, it's going to come shortly, quickly, hastily. When these things come, they're come. what did Jesus say about the last day? It's going to come like a what? A thief in the night. One day, everybody's going to be living their life as normal, and the next, boom. We get the idea, oh, and that for Christians, we can discern seasons. We don't know days nor hours, but I'm going to tell you what, the world is going to be shocked when Christ returns. They're going to be shocked when the tribulation comes because they're going to be eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, things are going to be life as normal. But the things that are talked about here will come to pass shortly. Now, I think there's a secondary application. 2,000 years to us is a couple of days to God. So The Bible warns us not to be deceived about time frames, but he tells us in verse 1, these things must shortly come to pass. But then in verse 3, he says that the time is what? At hand. Again, borrowing another, from other preachers. Another preacher, this does not mean immediate. It means imminent. We need to ponder that, stuck that in our mind, meaning it doesn't mean... Right now, it means any time, any time that is at hand. I looked up today uh, the, the, the words at hand. That term is used throughout Scripture. Um, the Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonians that there were those writing epistles as though the day of the Lord was at hand. And he debunks that and he says, no, you know, that's not true. Well, that sounds like a contradiction. The Apostle Paul told the Thessalonians it was not at hand. John says the day is at hand. Which is it? Well, we have the words at hand. It doesn't take long without having to open up your concordance or a dictionary to understand the context was very different. In Thessalonians, they were being told they were living in the tribulation. At hand there, different Greek word than we get from here where we have translated at hand here. In Thessalonians, it meant present, it's here. Here it means imminent, could happen at any time. Two different meanings. And so the idea would be this, when, when this book was written, when did John say the things that were going to happen could happen? The time is at hand. There's a great deal of pushback today about the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And I just want to, I want to caution you. If you're going to go wade through the Internet and listen to teachers and preachers and read all kinds of books about the Bible, you need to be extremely well-grounded in your doctrine. Because there are so many things that are being said today, and I'm not—I'm not saying don't read. I'm not saying don't hear what others have to say. You just need to make sure you are well grounded in what the Word of God says. Because there's a there's a, a, a rising up uh, of of a lot of. It's interesting during this time. Uh, especially even among people who've been taught better, how there's a rising up of of the move of mid-trib rapture, post-trib rapture, and amillennialism, as we see a rise in Calvinism, we see along with that a rise in amillennialism. You've got to completely reinterpret your Bible to come to that. And so I just caution you tonight, the imminent return of Jesus Christ is taught in the first three verses of Revelation. The time is at hand. It doesn't mean it is actively happening, but it can happen at any moment. Any time, And so then tonight, the reader for us, we have a special promise that we're blessed if we read and hear and keep the things that are written here, herein. Why? Because the time is at hand. I said at the beginning of the message tonight, one of my heart's desires is that we come out of the book of Revelation and it would help us be focused with laser, laser point vision on eternal things that it would help us to redeem the time because the days are evil. You realize that's what verse 3 is saying. You need to read these things, hear these things, and keep these things because what I'm going to write to you about could be on the world at any moment. The believer has no excuse to be caught off guard. We know these things ahead of time. That's exactly what Peter told the people he wrote to in chapter 3. If ye know these things, what manner of persons ought ye to be? You know what's coming down the pike. What kind of people should you be living in anticipation of what is at hand, let me put it to you this way as we close tonight. Let's say um, you have a bunch of kids and they're ready to go away for an evening with their friends and um, you tell them on oh, get ready, they could be here um, you know they're going to come pick you up, and you need be ready when they get here and your children say, "Well, when are they coming and you say they could be here at any time. right By now they said they would be here between seven and seven thirty it's seven fifteen. So when should we expect them? At any moment. They're not here, but they could be here any time. So you be ready the moment they show up to walk out the door so you don't make them late. Now, you know what? You and I are supposed to be living with the truth. We are between 7 and 7.30. The time is at hand. He could come at any time and begin to bring to pass the things that must shortly come to pass. So we need to live ready for that day. I don't think we need anything more right now among God's people among god's church is in america Then a, rem- a reminder that we are living for the day when christ returns it's almost like we've gone to sleep on that truth almost like we've forgotten that yes his return is imminent and we need to live for that truth we need to live for his appearing loving his appearing and so that's our prayer tonight we might have the blessing of reading and hearing and retaining because the time is at hand as we approach into this book there's a number of things that are, that are mysterious. There's a number of things that are, are heart-stirring. But let's be attentive and ask the Lord to speak to us and help us grasp what he has for us as we go through it that we'll be, be more prepared for his return.